Welcome to episode 64 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Joshua Noe, a resident at Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell at Southside Hospital, as well as the 2019 through 2021 Secretary Treasurer of AEM RSA, speaks with Dr. Michael Bond, an Associate Professor and Emergency Medicine Residency Program Director at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Today, Drs. Novi and Bond discuss hand and wrist injuries. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the AAEM RSA podcast series. I'm Joshua Novi, and we are recording uh, in San Diego at the 24th Annual Scientific Assembly. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Bond, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Program Director for the Emergency Medicine Residency at the University of Maryland. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bond. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, our hands are what allowed us to create civilized life for humankind. They're perhaps among our most valuable assets as humans, and more anatomically speaking, anyone who's ever seen a homunculus or even gotten a bad paper cut will appreciate that our hands' immense sensitivity It allows us to use tools and fulfill our activities of daily living. Hand and wrist injuries, if improperly diagnosed, can often lead to ongoing pain and even disability. And given the intricate anatomy of the hand and wrist, prompt and accurate diagnosis is crucial. Dr. Bond, when a patient presents with a chief complaint of a hand or wrist injury, what information do you feel is necessary to guide your management And at what point or under which circumstances is the emergency physician limited without consulting the ortho service? So great question. I definitely do think the opposable thumb is what separates us from all the other animals in the jungle and lets us do so many different things. So some of the information I think that's necessary to really guide your manage is definitely you can start even with like the old car acronym, which is onset, location, duration, get all the basics of the HPI, like how'd you hurt yourself? What were you doing at the time? But really try to get specifics at times. Sometimes we ask a cursory history sometimes, but if they fell onto their hand, can they actually remember like what position their hand was in? Was it really on an outstretched hand or was their wrist flexed a little bit when they fell on it? Because you'll get different types of injury patterns with it. So that could help like recreate how the break was made and help you with reduction techniques too. So you want to know that. But some of the other stuff that we sometimes forget to document or ask about is hand dominance. A lot changes if it's your dominant hand versus your non-dominant hand, Um, especially depending on what your occupation could be. And a lot of people don't tend to ask that. I ask my residents all the time, what does the patient do? Because it's one of those things that also just helps me build a rapport with the patient a little bit. But it also changes, like, if they're a security guard with a gun, do I really want to give them narcotics if they're going to work or other things that might make them sleepy? But So occupation. But for ortho, it's more important, too, with, say, a simple fingertip avulsion. You're deciding to be a gourmet chef and cutting up some carrots at home and you cut off the very tip of your fingertip. Most of the time, we just let that heal or we don't worry about it too much. But it could be different if you're a professional guitarist or a pianist and you really need to have good sensation there. Ortho and hand surgeons might treat that a little bit differently. So it's really important sometimes to know exactly what their profession is. Or say a felon, if you are treating one of those in the, not a person that's in jail, but 
the infection. So if you have a felon and you're trying to aspirate the pus from the pad of their finger, you really want to make sure in somebody that's a guitarist or a pianist that they're not going to have a loose pad. So I might actually get a hand surgeon involved in that because it's going to be a really high-risk patient. That complications I'd want them to deal with as opposed to if you're a construction worker and it's your pinky, it's probably not going to be a big deal for you. So, I can, so occupation really makes a big difference. A lot of times, too, you want to know time of injury. If you were recently just breaking up your dog's fighting and got bitten in the hand and come and see me right away, I can start antibiotics. It's probably not a bad infection. But if you come see me two or three days later, I have to really worry about like flexor, synoviitis, other infections of your hand. So we really want to know time of injury because that really sets us up. You also like to know if the wound could be contaminated with anything. If you cut your hand, what did you cut it with? Was it a pocket knife or was it a kitchen knife that gets cleaned frequently? Was it a chainsaw and you have all that debris in the wound? Um, so you want to know like how contaminated the wound can be. Um, I also like to know if any self-treatment was done. It's not unusual. People are playing, say, football, and they get their finger caught on a jersey, and they dislocate their finger, and they kind of pull it back into place themselves, or somebody pulls it back into place. You want to know that so you don't think it's just a simple single, uh, finger sprain when it can actually have been a dislocation that reduced, and you need to make sure there's not more ligamentous injury. So self-treatment is really helpful, too. But then in HPI, to get all the details is really important. One of the ones that makes me think too is like if you do get your hand cut, you really need to know what position the hand was in when there was a laceration because when you straighten out your hand as we normally examine people, the tendon can actually be pulled back into their hand. So if you're trying to look to the bottom of the wound, you'll say, oh, there's no tendon laceration. But if you realize that they actually cut it when their hand was clinched in like a fist, all the tendons might kind of move down. So you got to examine him in the position that the the wound was made in. Ideally, just for that reason, we should make sure that we're moving the fingers full range of motion, but just realize that tendons can get pulled back into the hand and the spot you're looking at might actually be the spot that was lined up with the skin cut that you're seeing. So that's really important too. So it sounds like dynamic injury, dynamic exam. Correct. And then also it's helpful to know if they've ever injured that area before. So we're talking about hand and wrist, but if they've already had wrist surgeries before, is there hardware in there? Could there be other complications causing stuff? So I want to know if they've actually um, had any surgeries before too, because that might throw off your exam. They might already have some sensory loss from a prior surgery that you need to know about. The other thing that would be really helpful that very few people do for hand exams is two-point discrimination. I'm probably the only person in my ED that actually has a two-point discriminator that I keep in my bag that will tell me exactly how far apart it is. A lot of people use a paper clip to try to touch, which is fine. But to do two-point discrimination, especially if it's a dominant hand, you want to make sure their sensation is really intact. Not just, can you feel this? Can you feel this? You want to be a little bit more discreet about it. So for the medical students who are listening in who might not have the cash to buy a two-point discriminator, do you feel that a using just finding a paper clip and bending it out of shape is adequate for, this, for the purposes of this exam? It is adequate. I would just say go grab one of the Q-tips, too, because they have a little ruler on them. And make sure that you're actually like at five millimeters. Don't eye it. Most of the time, our guesstimates of size and length are really bad. So if you're going to document two-point discriminations intact, most people are thinking you're talking about the five millimeter range. So make sure that your points are really at that range. Okay. So some injury patterns may not be salient and can be misdiagnosed by the novice clinician. 
So what injuries would you put in this category and what pearls can you offer for those in resource limited practice settings where the ortho consult might be delayed? So there's definitely a, a lot of injuries that can be missed or misrecognized uh, for the potential for bad outcomes. And I think the best example of this is high pressure wounds. Almost always affects men and almost affects men's dominant hand, sorry, non-dominant hand. So you're out in the backyard using your grease gun or spray painter and the nozzle gets clogged. It's not unusual for people to go and try to use their finger to try to clean out the nozzle, not realizing the gun's still triggered. And so it winds up injecting whatever material you're using. The, the wounds look really benign. They look like a little pinhole. But the problem is because of the high pressure, things got shot all the way up the finger into the hand. And depending on what you're using, if it's paint, if it's grease, if it's some other chemical, they can be really highly toxic. So they'll hurt a little bit in the beginning. There's normally a delay in presentation. It just looks like a little pinhole. It's not unusual for providers just to update their tetanus because they got a cut and think it's okay. And then it's, they can get bad infections that lead to amputation. Even with optimal care, people can have permanent disability or get amputations from it. So that's also one of the things I tell patients that have high pressure injuries. I'm gonna do everything I can in the world for you right now, but just realize this is a really bad injury. Um, we're going to get the best people involved, but you still might have permanent disability in that finger because of the effects of it. I just want to make sure that I'm understanding and our listeners are understanding the, the nature of the high-pressure injury. Is this an entry at a distal point and then a substance is tracking along the length of the finger into the hand? Correct. So some of these guns will have pressures of hundreds to thousands of pounds per square inch and whatever chemical or paint it is will make a little puncture hole and then typically travel up along the tendon sheaths so it can easily make it quickly into the palm of the hand even further up. So one of the tricks you can do is potentially even just get an x-ray. A lot of the stuff is radio opaque or you might actually see air in the finger all the way up into the palm of the hand. So it can give you an, ex an idea of how extensive it was because again, just looking at the finger just looks like a little puncture wound doesn't look like anything bad at all. But yeah, the pressure does push everything high up into the hand. And it sounds like this kind of injury, given the industrial nature of it, another reason why you always want to make sure to ask, hey, what do you do for a living? Absolutely, because the occupational injury is going to probably have more of the cost of chemicals, as opposed to the homeowner that just uses those things to like power wash their house or spray paint. We don't, our, the chemicals we use aren't nearly as bad as what occupational people do. The second injury that I think is fraught with disaster sometimes is fight bites. So I know a lot of people might not believe this, but our patients lie to us all the time. And so they get into a fight and they punch somebody in the mouth and they get a nice little laceration over their fourth or fifth knuckle. And then it's very easily get infected because it hits somebody's mouth and their teeth and saliva got into it. It's also easy to be associated with secondary injuries like a tendon lacerations or a metacarpal head fracture that could easily be missed too. Sometimes you'll even get foreign bodies like pieces of teeth in the wounds too. But they look, they could look pretty benign initially. And it's not unusual that patients will say, well, they stumbled and fell and hit their hand against a wall, or they stumbled and f fell and hit their hand on the floor. But it's almost to the point where you should assume that any abrasion, laceration across the knuckles is a fight bite. Because those rapidly get infected from our mouth flora and also skin flora and can become really bad infections very quickly. But there's typically a delay in presentation because they're embarrassed because they got into a fight or they think they might get into trouble. And then they tell stories that might not actually go along with the real nature of the injury. 
is there going to be a, a frank inconsistency between the injury that you're seeing and the, the mechanism of injury that you would expect for that presentation inconsistent with what the patient is telling you? No, I guess if you dead fall and punch the wall as you were going down to brace it, you could have a similar type abrasion. They tend not to get as infected as much because the wall isn't as dirty as our mouths. It doesn't have as many bacteria. If there's a foreign body in it, like a piece of tooth, well, of course, that's not going to be consistent. But so there could be some consistencies with it. That's why it's so easy to sometimes believe their story. But a lot of people will say that you should just always assume it's a fight bite no matter what the story is. Assume the worst because those are the ones that get infected and ideally treat them with like Augmentin, if, they're, if it's really bad, Unison, to cover that oral flora. If they're allergic to penicillins, then clindamycin would be a good alternative. So relating to fight bites, what are your concerns about animal bites, dog and cat? Same thing, same flora, same antibiotic. Dogs are more concerned with crush injuries. So they tend to crush the tissue, so it's really hard sometimes to clean it out well. I wouldn't close a dog bite per se. I would let it heal by secondary intention or delayed closure after I made sure it wasn't infected. Cat bites can be a little bit more difficult to treat because their teeth are small and razor sharp, so they actually puncture and they're more likely to get into the bone. So you really have to worry about like osteomyelitis setting in too. Um, so cat bites can actually be worse than dog bites where dog bites, again, are just more of a crush injury. Where, and cat bites are more of like a stab puncture wound and they can easily get down to the bone. So both can be pretty bad and I would treat aggressively with antibiotics. So I'm gonna be honest here, I'm, a, I'm sitting here, I'm a dog person, I don't really see cats as being this strong, ferocious animal, so I'm surprised to hear that they can actually cause such devastating illness like osteomyelitis, that's surprising to me. Yeah, and it's all just because of how thin and needle sharp their teeth are compared to a dog's which are broader, so bigger hole, more of a crushing force with it. So thankfully we don't see as many cat bites. So we see more, I think we see more dog bites overall, but cat bites can be pretty bad too. So when it comes to management for a hand and wrist injury, what conditions or complicating factors must absolutely be ruled out before you'll consider giving the green light for a more conservative management? So I wanna make sure I don't see any signs of an infection. If there's already an infection set in, I'm gonna be a much more conservative with your hand and probably decide to admit you for some IV antibiotics, position the hand and splint it in the position of function, elevate it so it's got good drainage, and get a second opinion with it. I also want to make sure that I don't think there's any tendon or joint involvement. So if there's any lacerations, you really need to explore these things extremely well, and ideally you explore it in a bloodless field. So this is absolutely where I use lidocaine with epinephrine, if it's not in shortage at your hospital, to make sure that there's no blood obscuring my view. I'll sometimes even put on a partial tourniquet or inflate a blood pressure cuff on their arm. But I wanna take the time with good overhead lighting, make sure that I don't see any tendon through full range of motion or joint involvement, because all that would mean that ortho needs to get involved right away to either wash it out or fix it. So those are the things. If all that's kind of excluded, they don't have any neurodeficits, sensations intact. And I think there's a green light that a lot of these things can be treated conservatively. The exception would be the high pressure wounds. Those I think orthopedics should be involved in or hand surgeons right away. Uh, otherwise, the hand guys can probably see them in a day or two just for follow-up. And then with all this stuff, it's really about good, really good discharge instructions. If you start noticing any more pain or pus or fevers, purulence, they need to come in right come back right away and get it treated aggressively, not just in three days when they see the PCP. They need to really be given permission to come back to the emergency department and get seen 
because something's amiss. And it's to protect us, it's to protect them. Ultimately, it's just the right thing for the patient. So we're, we've got a, a little bit of time left here. I want to make sure that we have something good for our students to take away from this uh, as well. So if you had just five minutes to advise a student rotating your emergency department, and they're gonna, you've, you've asked them to go see a patient with a hand injury, what would you want them to know before they go in to see the patient? And what would you want them to come back with? Aside from what we spoke about in the beginning, the important elements of the HPI, what procedures or what, um, what physical exam maneuvers do you want your student to be aware of before they go in to see the patient? So with a podcast, we're not going to be able to really discuss or demonstrate this at all. But things that they should probably know how to do with a hand exam is to be able to separate all the different tendons. So specifically, how do you test flexitorum superficialis from profundus? And how do you hold the finger so you can know which one's actually doing the work to see if there's any disruption in it? But they should definitely, when they go in to see the, the patients, they should... One, get a detailed HPI like we talked about already. When did it happen? How did it happen? Try to get as many details as possible. Age, occupation are incredibly important. Any prior surgeries to that limb, if they have any big hobbies too. So they might be a construction worker but have a side gig that's just as important to them too. So make sure you ask about those. Hand dominance is a big one. It's amazing how many times people come out and they don't know if they're right or left-handed. So that because that changes how we do everything too. And then if there's been any treatment up to this point, so if they've already been started on antibiotics and that one's not working or any other treatment, I would want to know all that. And then as far as doing the exam, one, again, just like we do most things, just inspect. Compare it to the other side. Thankfully, most of us have two hands, so you can compare if there's any swelling. There's going to be a slight bit of difference. Most of the time, our dominant hand is going to be a little bit more muscular than our non-dominant hand, but otherwise, they should look pretty similar. But inspect, do you notice any signs of atrophy of any of the muscles, which might be a sign of like a carpal tunnel syndrome too. But do you notice any wasting? Is there any rashes, cuts, abrasions? Document all of it. Ideally, any laceration should be measured. We always try to wing it and do one centimeter. Most of the time our measurements, like I said, are really woefully inaccurate. So take care of that. And then palpate, see if there's any tenderness, feel the bones, feel for any crepitus or deformity in them. Ideally start in the the area that's furthest away from where their pain is and then move towards the area of pain. And then we're going to want to test mobility in all the joints to make sure. And then you should also be testing if there's any laxity with any of the, the tendons that hold or the ligaments that hold the joints together. So the one that comes to mind is like ulnar collateral ligament, gamekeeper's thumb. If they were skiing and fell down, they can easily tear that ligament. So that should be tested for if they're having thumb pain. People will typically test the carpal bones, looking for scaphoid tenderness or tenderness with axial loading. All that's great. Um, and then you want to just test strength. So you're going to want to test grip strength. You want to make sure that they can spread their fingers wide, pull their fingers together. As you had demonstrated earlier, make sure that they can make the OK sign and then touch their finger to their thumb with all the other fingers too to make sure it's intact. Make sure they have good wrist extension, wrist flexion. And that would probably be a good general hand exam to get most of the stuff done. If there's a laceration, by the time they're seeing the patient, they're probably going to come out and we'll probably explore it together. So I wouldn't expect a student or even a resident to have like a full exploration done. Probably just do it all at one time because most of the time the attendee is going to want to see it too. So instead of the patient having to look through it twice, we could do it together. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us today, Dr. Bond, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in San Diego. Thank you. You too. 
We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.